Last week, we, what we did, and I'm, I'm going to, for the first couple of minutes before we open this text, is uh, just rehearse last week, especially if you weren't here, because this week needs to really be placed in the context of last week. And we talked about sexuality, and the main thing we said was that the, the kind of popular notion that when you encounter Christianity and its sexual ethic, it's primarily a negative slant or negative posture towards sexuality and about how that's very misleading and not representative of the Scripture's view of sexuality. Um, there's an entire book of the Old Testament that's actually devoted simply to the goodness of sexuality in very physical, graphic, pleasurable terms. That, in fact, God is not against sex. That actually His posture is He is incredibly for really, really good sex. And what that means is if you're for really, really good sex, it means you actually oppose bad sex. And this is a place, obviously, at Stanford where excellence is valued, right? And God is saying, you need to pursue excellence in sexuality as well. And so he puts before us the picture of the biblical biblical sexual ethic. um, And and what it it is, is it's supposed to be a part of this thing called a marriage covenant. And not because God is approved, but again, because God actually loves and designed and intended for us to have great sex. And the reason that it is a part of this thing called a marriage covenant is that sex is intended to be an activity of self-giving that actually mirrors and nourishes all the other aspects of self-giving that uh, that's intended to occur in the covenant of marriage. It's actually a physical way that says, all of me is all of yours. As you've said to me, uh, all of me socially, all of me emotionally, all of me spiritually, all of me financially, all of everything that comprises me, here is all of it, and I give it to you, and I covenantally bind myself to you. In other words, love is not simply this expression or this feeling that I like you a lot. It's not even a feeling that I'm committed to you a lot. It actually is a legal commitment. It is a real binding of each other, vows taken, oaths taken. And in that context, what sex actually does is it has the capacity to make us more human, to heal us. And outside of that context, what sex is, instead of this beautiful self-giving exercise that really works healing into our lives, outside of that context, what it does is it becomes something selfish that hardens our hearts and turns us in on ourselves. We didn't deny That sex feels good, it does in every context, but it's like salt water to someone who's thirsty, which is when they initially drink it, it still feels life-giving. It feels good. But what you find is that over time, you're more and more thirsty because the very thing that you hoped would give you life is actually leaching life from you. Pornography and masturbation are fantasy lives. Sexuality, and we talked about how sexuality is far more than simply intercourse. Sexuality with someone that we're not married to, they're all fundamentally selfish when they occur outside of the covenant of marriage. And there's objective proof. And the objective proof is this, is that you are unwilling to bind yourself to your partner. Sex without marriage is, I love the pleasure I get from this. I also, additionally, like you a lot. Might even say, I love you. However, I will not bind myself to you. Above all things, I am committed to myself, and therefore I will reserve the right to leave at any time. I will say with my body what I'm actually unwilling to say with the rest of my life. Cameron Diaz said it in the movie Vanilla Sky. When you have sex with someone, your body's making a promise, whether you do or not. And so we lie with our bodies, and we say, I am all yours, but really, I'm not. It's about me. And what I've said with my body is not true with my actions because... Even inside of a dating relationship, right? You can't count on me tomorrow. I'm not bound to you, and I'm within my rights to not be with you tomorrow. Which what that means is, when you dig down to the root, what sits at the core of any kind of expression of sexuality outside of marriage is selfishness. I reserve the right to protect myself. I am not bound to you. And that's killing us. It's really tearing us up. It's breaking marriage because we're actually training ourselves to think about marriage as consumers committed to our individual happiness instead of covenanters that are committed to the relationship, even if we're committed to the relationship at the expense of our own needs and happiness. 
And that's how the Bible actually defines real love. It's breaking our understanding of Jesus because the marriage covenant is actually not the end or the purpose. It's actually intended always to be a a signpost, something that we look at. And when we look at, we begin to understand the greater reality behind it, which is Jesus's covenant love for his people, a commitment to his people at the expense of his own life. And as we misuse sex, outside of the context, outside of the safety of covenant, our vision and experience of Christ's love breaks down. Our ability to grasp what love is breaks down and breaks us. It breaks our humanity. Our ability to feel over time breaks down. And our hope for enjoying sex and enjoying marriage and enjoying Jesus as those things were meant begins to break down. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to grapple with the consequences of our sexual foolishness. And that's terrifying because we're all sexually broken. In this room, there are a lot of people who think they're the only one. In fact, probably everybody in this room thinks they're the only one. We all have stories, stories of our relationships with other people, stories of our own personal history. We have internet search histories in this room. We have fantasies in this room. And we're all terrified, right, in a religious context to hold that up and see what the Bible has to say about our sexual brokenness. And I stand here not as a bastion of sexual purity. This is where I stand. I'm part of the brokenness in this room. I am someone who is in the process and will be until the day I die of needing Jesus to protect me and to protect my marriage and my family from my sexual brokenness. He has to sustain me and my family for us to make it because I'm sexually broken. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through a narrative. We're just going to retell the story over time of what Jesus does when he meets someone who's sexually broken. So this is Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with them. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word and we read this passage, I pray that you would press home to us the profundity of it, um, the awkwardness of it, the inappropriateness of it. And I pray that when we encounter this passage, we would see ourselves in it. But more than that, we'd see who you are in it, dear God. And I pray, I pray, I pray that you would speak to the sexual brokenness of every story in this room. And that we would see who you are when you encounter people like us. In your name, we pray. Be with us, Holy Spirit. In your name, we pray. Amen. All right, at this point in Jesus' ministry, you kind of, to kind of place us... Uh, You know, we're just a couple of chapters into a gospel right here. And what's happened is he's this wandering teacher and he's starting to make a fuss. He's starting to create a movement. Um, 
the religious establishment is caught between a rock and a hard place because Jesus has made these waves. He's created a pretty decent following. But on the other hand, his teaching and his miracles are actually very disconcerting to the religious establishment, disconcerting to the local pastors. His te- and this is why it's disconcerting, because his teaching is actually rooted in the same ancient text. He's, Jesus is teaching from the Old Testament the whole time. The same one that Simon and the Pharisees are teaching from. But he seems to be drawing really, really different conclusions. And he seems to be attracting a really, really different kind of crowd than the religious establishment normally attracts. So, what are you supposed to do with somebody who, on appearances, looks like they're in your camp, but you kind of oppose? You know, you don't want to come across as against them because you risk being unpopular and losing your influence. And so what you do is you get close to them. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're saying, Jesus created this movement. We don't totally agree with it, but we know we can't come out against him because in some ways we're supposed to be on the same team. And so what you do with those kind of people is you get close to them. And that's what Simon the Pharisee is doing. He's inviting Jesus to his house, to a theological a, a dinner uh, this was a common practice where all the local Pharisees or the pastors and religious authorities would get together and talk theology. And so they've brought Jesus in because what you do with somebody that you oppose, but you kind of can't politically take the risk of publicly opposing, you bring them close so you can manage them, right? And you can influence them, and maybe so you can expose them. And that's what Simon's doing. So here's Jesus in the religious establishment. Simon, a local churchman, wants to get close to him and invites him to this dinner. And this is what unfolds. He took his place at the table. In the middle of dinner, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was at this table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet and her tears and wiped them with her hair the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with an ointment. And what we've got to see is we've got to see how wildly inappropriate this scene is and then ask, why would somebody do something inappropriate? That's really what we have to see in this. And you have to understand there's some key details about this woman that are unloaded on us right as this passage starts out. It tells us that this woman of the city who was a sinner, right? These are, these are details, and you probably, maybe some of you picked up that this is a euphemism. Uh, as soon as you started reading it. Uh, when Simon the Pharisee thinks to himself, if Jesus knew anything, he would know who this woman was. Um, this woman, the first thing we learn is, she is an outsider. She's an outsider, especially to this subgroup, right? Religious authorities. Because she's a prostitute. That's what the euphemism is for, a woman of the city, a sinner. And there's no one who's more scorned and there's no one who's more of a socially outsider then and today than a whore. And that's what she is. There's no lower occupation. She's used by men. She's scorned by women. And uh, Katie and I actually had the privilege to go to Athens, Greece two years ago. And maybe some of you have done this before. Volunteer with a ministry that helps women get out of prostitution. And what they do is they go and spend time with the prostitutes on the streets and, and these women are in a dark, dark place, both figuratively, but actually also physically. That literally in Athens, Greece, which is a very progressive culture, they, have, they come out late, late at night, after midnight, and they go to places in town that everyone else avoids. These are the places no one wants to be in that aren't safe. That's where prostitutes have to go. And again, this is in a progressive, right, European culture. That's where the prostitutes are relegated to. And their physical isolation also mirrors their social isolation. And think about it. If that's how prostitutes are regarded in a permissive culture, right, where women are empowered, how do you think they're regarded in the ancient Near East where women are not empowered? They're very much oppressed. Women could not own property. Women could not testify in court. They were held socially on the same level as children. So if women are relegated as outsiders in Europe, in Athens, Greece today, if they're made to be in places no one wants to be and be there at times that no one else is there, how much more so in the ancient Near East? And what happens, that's why what happens in this passage, passage, it's so wildly inappropriate. She busts into a high-profile dinner with conservative religious authorities. 
And the only thing more disgraceful than her life and her history and her occupation, the only thing that she could do more disgraceful than that is not know her place. Right? The have, the have you no shame. You have this life. At least respect the social expectations of where you're supposed to be. The lower rungs and the outer rings of society and culture, if nothing else, at least need to know their place and never presume to present themselves among the upper rungs and the inner rings of culture. You, maybe you've been in this setting before where someone who doesn't belong, clearly doesn't belong, makes everybody feel really uncomfortable by presuming to, be, uh, to have the right to be present. And it, it's kind of silly, but if you've ever tried to sit in first class in an airplane when you don't deserve to be there, right? And then you get exposed. And people just drill like a hole with the laser beams of their eyes through you when the flight attendant asks, are you supposed to be here? Yes, I've been in that situation before, right? <laughs> Some of you have to. But when you presume to be in a place you're not allowed to be, right? Oh, I mean, there's nothing more upsetting. Okay, this isn't some, like, middle-class dude trying to sneak into first class. This is a prostitute coming to a meeting with the conservative religious authorities. (coughs) She's the worst kind of outsider. She's not a socioeconomic outsider like I am trying to sneak into first class. She's a moral outsider. And she busts through. And the question is... What could have happened in her life so powerfully and so dramatically that she ignores all the social conventions and busts into that room? That's really the question. That's what we're intended to feel. She's a social outsider, but that's not all. She's also, this is what we have to say, see, she's deeply invested in her lifestyle. In conservative ancient Near Eastern culture, Prostitutes didn't dress like they did today. They were more covered up. They covered their hair, things like that. And what identified them was not the way they dressed, but actually their odor. And what the practice was is they would have these alabaster jars like she has that they would hang between their breasts, and people would identify them by their odor. And they would spend their time, literally, her angel investment was this alabaster flask. They would spend their time and their money to develop a scent that identified them as a prostitute. It's literally her angel investment, and yet she's deeply invested. And in fact, her capital is right there. And yet she pours out the very thing that identifies her. She pours out her life at Jesus' feet at a moment's notice. She pours it out in a moment. And and I'll stop for a second to make this first point of application. There are stories in this room. There are internet search histories in this room. There are videos. There are years of struggles with masturbation. There are stories of of maybe first sexual encounters and seconds and thirds that maybe have now become long years of sexuality. Maybe it's kind of who you are now. Maybe it's just, maybe that first or second encounter rocked you so much that you can't believe you became that person. And you're here at RUF, and you what you think is, I know myself, and I'm here among the religious people. They're nice. You like the messages at RUF. But you also feel like, I'm here, I like to be here, but this can't really be me. I can never really truly be a part of this group, not with what you know about yourself. You can't become a religious person, not because it's not appealing, Christianity, at at minimum, is moderately appealing. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But that's not what's holding you back. What's holding you back is you're too deeply invested and you're too deeply entrenched and too deeply or powerfully locked in to your sexual sin. You don't want it to be questioned. It's hard to consider. In, In some ways, it's become part of your identity. It's become normal. And this is this is RUF. You know, are you is somebody like you allowed to really be? A part of this, to expect to have a front row seat or a place of honor or, or be a spiritual person or a leader in this context. Can somebody with your internet history that goes back for years, even though you've cleared it a thousand times, can you really be one of the good people here? And, 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 and you feel like you can't, so you relegate yourself to the fringe 
with your doubts and, and your sin and your junk and it's too deep in you and your addictions and, and the things in you that you don't even feel, you feel guilty about the fact you don't feel guilty about it anymore. Right? Your, your things that I know this is wrong, but I love it. My conscience is no longer seared by it. And you're afraid to pour those things out at Jesus' feet because they've become too important to your sense of being. And what you need to see is this woman meets Jesus. And she pours her life out. Her livelihood. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew that's what was happening. She was deeply invested, quite literally, in her sexual brokenness. And in a moment's notice, she pours it all out. She's social outcast. She's deeply invested into her sexual brokenness. And she's unclean. She's also spiritually or religiously unclean. She doesn't just let go of her identity. She doesn't just ignore social conventions. She, returned, she turns religious conventions upside down. But by the rabbinic tradition of that time, she was ritually unclean. And what would happen if she touched a man during her uncleanness is she would make him unclean as well. And she doesn't have to just touch him. She, she doesn't merely touch him. She actually weeps and washes his feet. And again, you've got to imagine feet in this culture. Right? This is a place and a time where there's no indoor plumbing, where waste is thrown out on the roads. This is why when you would have someone over, the first thing you would offer is to wash their feet or to have a servant wash their feet or offer them a bowl of water so they can wash their feet because feet are disgusting at this time. Right? Everybody wore Birkenstocks. That's the only kind of shoe they had at that point in time. But it means that it was, they, were, they had walked through a lot, a lot of different kind of things, a lot of waste. And she lets down her hair and washes his feet. And what you also need to know is in, in the Talmud, I actually read this passage earlier today, in rabbinic code at that time, the Jewish code, this is not from the Bible, but from the Talmud, a husband was actually allowed to divorce his wife if she exposed her hair in public. And the reason why is because in that culture, that was considered very sexually aggressive and lascivious. So there's rabbinic code that said if your husband, if your, excuse me, if your wife did, so some, did something... Uh, as extreme and inappropriate as let down her hair or let out her hair in public, that was actually cause for divorce. And what, I, what, what I'm trying to capture for us is that none of us have seen anything this wildly inappropriate. We're, we're at Stanford where a lot of wild, inappropriate things happen, right? None of us have seen anything this wildly inappropriate, this shocking, right? The shocking stuff at Stanford is not near shocking as what's happening in this scene, this, this emotional expression that subverts all these conventions. Someone pouring out their identity and their livelihood, all of it, in a very literal fashion. Who carelessly blows through social expectations and norms for somebody who occupies her station in society, right? Who flaunts religious expectations and performs an act that would be considered very, very suggestive, but we know it's not suggestive. She simply started washing his feet and realized she had nothing to clean them with, so she used her hair. And the question before us is why does someone behave that way? What's happened in her life to cause her to behave like that? Even if you're a skeptic, you have to admit something powerful must have occurred to this woman. To, for her to kind of put on this kind of display, to blow past all those expectations, to shock, she, her purpose was not shock, to shock anybody. And you, I mean, the closest thing I can imagine to simply something, someone doing so spontaneously wild and unconventional was there was a time I was at a restaurant in Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> Shout out. Um, and in the middle of lunch, 1230, middle of the day, this restaurant didn't have any walls or anything between the tables. Everybody was dining uh, together. This guy stands up on the table and says, well, there you go. That was enough. Just standing up on the table. <laughs> that was the punchline. Um, actually, no, it's kind of overblown. But he stands up on the table and he says, I just want you all to know this is the greatest country ever. I just got back from Iraq. I had friends die next to me. We fought for freedom. I'm grateful for every second in this day. And it was like... It was powerful when this guy did it, you know? That's the closest thing I've ever seen to someone just saying, I don't care about any of the social conventions anymore. I'm going to express my joy and delight. 
Now, why do people in those situations act with that kind of impunity, without any reservation? It's because they experience something severe. Something so severe that they don't care anymore what everybody else thinks. Something that's life-altering, something that's far more powerful, right, than a good sermon or a good talk at RUF or a good concert or good Christian music in any other setting. Something that's far more powerful than all the other things that we think are powerful. And this is what this woman experienced. This is what allowed her to do this. Not just allowed her, compelled her to do this. She experienced how Jesus relates to sexually broken people. That's what she experienced. Not, not just mercy, a severe and deep mercy. So here's Simon, the local pastor, and he's completely baffled. And he says to himself, notice the language, he says to himself, if, if he really knew, if he was really a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, that she's a sinner. And Simon thinks like we do, which is, there is some forms of immorality that permanently relegates people to a certain class. That's just, that's just the real world, right? It doesn't mean we can't be nice to them. It doesn't mean that we can't kind of include them. But it's just true that what Simon is thinking is just like us, that at the end of the day, there are some religious people, and there are some people with some faults that can kind of transition into the religious people, but then there's an underclass of immoral people that can never really be a part of this inner circle, really be a part of the religious leaders. And in that context, Jesus tells a parable. And he says this, A certain money lender, Simon, I want you to hear this, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is about two years' worth of wages, and the other 50 denarii, which is about two months of wages. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? And, and Simon passes the test, right? Answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Simon passes. You've judged rightly. And Jesus, pun- the, the kind of punch in the gut on that question is this. What do you owe God? Saying, Simon, what do you think you owe God? It's a question for us. What do you think you owe God? If you got a statement, right, like your credit card bill or your cable bill or whatever it is, at the end of every month from God, what would it look like? What would He have required from you each month? Would it be short? Would it be long? Would it be overwhelming? You know? Simon thinks... In fact... The problem is actually Simon's not thinking because he's too afraid to contemplate that reality. Right? Simon is afraid to go into the kind of self-introspection that Jesus is calling to him right now. What do you think you owe God? And Simon doesn't get what's coming next. Jesus rebukes his host. Here's Simon, the local pastor, the local moral person, the spiritual authority... And Jesus is throwing everything upside down. He says here, I came here, Simon, and let me tell you how you treated me. What Simon did was a very calculated and cold social snub. That's what happened. He says, you didn't greet me with a kiss. This is the common way of greeting somebody, right? This is like not opening the door for someone. This is probably me a little bit of like shouting from the back of the house, come in, you know? Now I have children, so I send them to open the door because I think that's cute and I can get out of the activity of opening the door for people. But, that, but it's a very calculated social snub. So you didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't wash my feet. Again, when you walked into someone's house, it was to your advantage and their advantage to have your feet washed because they were disgusting. It was obvious when no one offered him, no servant, no, and neither Simon offered the chance to wash his feet, what Simon was doing. And you didn't anoint my head with oil. Again, that was kind of a chance to wash yourself before you came to the dinner table. And and maybe you've done this, maybe you've seen this. What Simon was doing is he was feigning respect for someone while also intentionally snubbing them because that's a power play, isn't it? To have someone important come into your presence, isn't it an awesome power play when you act like they're not important? You're trying to say something about yourself of like, oh yeah, yeah, you're important, I'm glad I get to associate with you, but you need to know I'm not impressed. And here's how I'm going to show you I'm not impressed. 
I'm not going to give you some common social decencies. They'll be small, but just enough to send the message of, I'm not impressed. And that's what Simon's doing. And Jesus is saying, Simon, you don't get it. You don't think much of me. And here, this is the crux of everything. You don't think much of me because you don't think you need much of me. You still choose to believe and you still need to believe that you have life managed. Religiously, morally, all of life. And your pride won't let you weep over your brokenness. And you know what this does? When our pride does not let us weep over brokenness, we lose the capacity to experience joy. When our pride does not let us weep over our brokenness, this is what happens. This is why... Real Christianity does talk about sin. It's an unpopular doctrine, but it's absolutely vital. This is why, because unless we talk about the doctrine of sin, we will not experience joy. And if our pride keeps us from weeping over our sin and our brokenness, we lose the capacity to experience joy. Because this this is what happens in this passage. First, I want you to see that fear is where pride is born. Simon is afraid. That's actually his fundamental posture towards God, towards society, towards everything. He's actually afraid, and we're afraid. What he's afraid of and what we're afraid of is exposure. We're afraid. None of us really wants to say what our hearts and actions really say about us. Right? There's, there's a disconnect for what, between what we like to think about ourselves and how our lives are really lived out. We're afraid of calling sin, sin. Because we wouldn't know what to do with it if we called everything in the Bible. If everything that the Bible describes as sin, if we actually called that sin in our lives, we wouldn't know what to do with it. It would be overwhelming. And so what we do is we justify and explain away our emptiness. We justify and explain away our lack of character. And best of all, what, we, what keeps us afloat is we parade our good things before our eyes and before the eyes of others so we can say, look, 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 I'm basically a good person. We've commodified morality into this list of kind of common decencies that if we all observe that, or at least I observe that, then I'm comfortable. But God is called light, the light of the world. And one of the things that severe light does is it exposes everything. Everything. And it exposes especially the realities that we want to keep hidden. And what we're like is we're like my, my little six-year-olds when they clean up their room. When we send them upstairs to clean up their room, they are really good at making it kind of look clean. And they can do that really, really quickly. But a couple of weeks ago, I decided I need to go up there and kind of check on some things. I have two six-year-old little girls. And I went up there, asked them to clean the room. They came back down a couple minutes later and they're like, Dad, it's clean. And I went up there and I kid you not, Teddy actually saw this. I pulled up their, uh, the, whatever it is, over the bottom of the bed, what's it, the dust ruffle. I filled up three 13-gallon trash bags with trash. Not even, we're not even talking about toys. With trash. I was carrying down trash bags of trash. Right? When they cleaned up their room, they didn't want to look underneath their bed because they know they'd be overwhelmed. When we approached the law... We don't want to look under the dust ruffle. And we can maintain a facade of cleanliness just like they did. Because we know we'd be overwhelmed. That it'd be bags. It would be bags. And the one thing we can't afford to do is actually let the light of the law of God shine on us that way. It's too much. Right? Little six-year-old girls can't handle that much trash. It's too much. We're afraid of the real us. The deep us, the me that's terrifying. And if we let that us, the real us, out into the light, if we put words to it, if we let anybody else know about it, we wouldn't, know, we wouldn't even know who we are anymore. We wouldn't know how to respond. We're too, this, is, this is why the TV show Dexter is so amazing, because the TV show Dexter is about this fundamental dynamic. And you should all watch it. It's incredible. Here's somebody who has deep, dark evil in their lives. And the whole TV show is about how he is dying to be known and completely afraid of being known. 
in managing that dynamic. I want someone to know who I really am and to see if I could ever really be safely known. And yet I know I could never really be safely known. And that's us walking through this life. And, and Dexter and our lives are coming undone by trying to walk down that line, crying out, somebody know me. I want to be seen. I want to be exposed. And yet I don't think there's anywhere safe for me to be seen. So what happens when we're afraid to deal with the brokenness to really be seen is we become proud. That's actually the response. Because pride is nothing more than the self-inflation that we have to have if we can't handle coming into the light. We have to arrive at a a sense of self somehow, so we let pride puff us up. Pride about essentially unimportant things in a lot of ways. Pride about religion, pride about politics, pride about school, pride about professional achievement, pride about your social ability, all those kind of things. We puff ourselves up with those with a sense of self-worth because we can't handle. We're afraid of the light exposing us. So fear of exposure births pride, and pride is what prevents the possibility of hope. The very thing that steals the possibility of our healing is our pride. We, we can't give power to our flawed selves. We can't give voice to our flawed selves. We can't let our flawed selves out. So I'm going to hide it. Th- this is why maybe for you religion feels hopeless. You enter into religious environments, uh, hopefully not, but maybe even RUF, and it seems, it seems like it's precisely the kind of place that you're not allowed to be safely exposed in, right? These are the religious people. These are all the nice people. These are all the conservative people, whatever it is. It's not safe for me here. It, it, it doesn't feel like a place where exposure is okay. This is what professor at Columbia University, um, a humanities professor, Andrew Del Banco, said as he sat in on an Alcoholic Anonymous meeting. And he watched this young, accomplished professional in New York City, in Manhattan, um, defend his lifestyle choices, talk about how it wasn't his fault, blame others, and articulate also how he was going to turn his life around. And, and Del Banco says he, sat next, he was sitting next to a 40-year-old uh, black man with dreadlocks. I don't know why he includes those details, but <laughs> maybe so we can all imagine some Rastafarian dude, I don't know, at an AA meeting. But this is what the man said to Del Banco, this professor. He said... I used to feel the, the same way as that guy until I achieved low self-esteem. Here's what Del Banco says about the encounter. He says, this was actually more than a good line. For me, it was a moment when I understood the new way, the religion that I had claimed to know something, something about. As the speaker bombarded us with phrases like, got to take control of my life. I got to really believe in myself. The man beside me took refuge, that's an interesting word, in the old Calvinist doctrine that pride is the enemy of hope. What he meant in his joke about self-esteem is that he learned no one can save himself by his own efforts. And he thought the speaker was still lost. He was lost himself without knowing it. You see, what pride does is pride prevents us from going outside of ourselves for the cure. This is why so much of our conversation about character formation, the person... When you're talking about the kind of person you want to become and you're working to become, this is what this, the language in that conversation is all. The language is, I've got to. I've got to be more committed. I've got to do more. I've really got to change the way things I do things. This time, I'm gonna. And pride is always about restarting the self with renewed vigor. That's how change comes. That's, well, that's how hope comes is, I've got to restart myself with a renewed vigor, a renewed vigor that I draw for myself. Pride relies on the self instead of seeing that the problem is me. My heart's dirty. My hands are dirty. And you know what? Dirty hands can't clean you. Pride sees everybody else's sin and not their own, right? Simon sees everybody else's sin. That, that's a tough... How about that for a diagnostic question? Whose sin, whose junk did you grieve today or get frustrated over today? Your roommates, Lance Armstrongs, professors, friends, or yours. Pride sees everybody else's. And lastly, this is the most dangerous thing. Pride makes us defensive. It's the thing that shuts down our ability to listen 
as soon as someone is either critical of or not impressed by what we're talking about, especially with, if we're talking about ourselves. Right? And, and here's, here's where Jesus wants us to get. When you're finally free from the need to defend yourself, you're free to weep. And what we need is we need that freedom to weep. That's where this woman is. She has a profound freedom that Simon can't understand. And it is it's freedom to go and weep. She says what we long to say, but we're terrified of saying, which is, I have nothing more to hide. A prostitute has nothing more to hide. Right? Not because she had her life together. No, no, no. A prostitute no longer has anything to hide. She didn't have any pride. There's no justification for pride. There's no pride in her occupation or in her life. She has nothing. And it's finally in being that stripped down, exposed, and defenseless. It's in that position that she's free and Simon's not. What other means of defending herself or justifying herself does she have? She doesn't have anymore. And what she's saying is, this is me, here's the life I've made, and it's a mess. She's free to weep. The application for tonight is this. You're free to weep. It's okay. Stanford is a place where, not Stanford, everywhere, where that's potentially disastrous, right? You have so much on your plate, you don't have time to weep. You can't show that weakness. But Jesus is saying, you're free to weep. That with me, you don't have to be afraid of that anymore. You don't have to justify anymore. You don't have to try and cover your mess with your religious activity anymore. See, a religious person will pursue religious activity so they can feel better about themselves. A Christian will still pursue religious activity But it's just because they just want to get next to Jesus. They want to be where he's sung about. They want to be where he's read about. They want to be where he's taught about. Because when you're next to him, you're actually free to weep. And when you stop defending yourself before the law, a defense that won't hold up, it's then actually in giving up that the one who can defend you comes to your defense. Because weeping is where joy is born. If fear is where pride is born, weeping and weakness is where joy is born. How does Jesus meet the sexually broken? He takes up her cause. He defends the one who's finally defenseless. He defends her from the proud and the judgmental nature of moralism. And his defensiveness, his, his defense is not permissiveness. Right? He doesn't say sin doesn't exist. He doesn't say, let this woman live her life the way she wants, because that's not what we need at the end of the day. And only actually people who are still too proud to weep will demand that no one judge them. Jesus still acknowledges sin. She weeps over and acknowledges her sin, and he forgives her. He releases her. He frees her. He says, your past is forgiven. It's wiped away. The thing that was condemning you, the thing that was a stain on your life, I've made white as snow. The thing that was impure, what what is defiled about you, what is selfish, the thing that is jacked up in you, it's clean. This is the way Paul said it. There's no condemnation. Not potentially not, not if you behave enough not. Not now, right now, but you could reacquire condemnation. Paul says... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. You can't reacquire it when you're forgiven. Not because they perform well, not because they're more moral than others, but when you cry to Jesus, forgive me. When you let the law expose you and you come to Jesus and you realize, I don't have defense anymore. He becomes your advocate. And the way in which he advocates for you is he stands before the accusations and the judgments of real sin. And he says, I'll let them fall on me because you're mine. The reason this woman acted 
so brashly. The reason why her confidence and her love for Jesus is so extraordinary, the reason she didn't give a crap what anybody thought about what she did, is because she had no other defense for her lifestyle. And her hope at the end of the day was not that she was going to order her life rightly and do better this next quarter. Her hope at the end of the day is, Jesus, can you forgive me? And when you've been forgiven much, you love much. And when you've been forgiven much, you're not afraid anymore. When you've been forgiven much, you don't care about social conventions. When you've been forgiven much, the anxiety of work and social life tomorrow, that anxiety gets muted. It gets diminished. When you've been forgiven much, you're no longer threatened by moralistic religious types. And when you've been forgiven much, your past no longer dominates or threatens you. We think that the reason that we don't have this kind of lavish praise for Jesus is because we haven't been religiously committed enough. We haven't willed ourselves to that place, right? We haven't been devoted enough. We haven't worked up enough fervor, right? And if, if your plan to kind of fix that gulf between your theology of who Jesus is, here he is, my Savior, and, and your enthusiasm about who Jesus is, he's my Savior, but if everything I say with my theology was really true, my enthusiasm wouldn't be so small. If your goal to fix that gulf between those two things is to fix it by effort and discipline, one of two things will happen. Either A, you'll give up, because there's nothing worse or more disorienting or disintegrating in this world than trying to like something you don't in fact like. You'll do it for a while because you feel like you should, and at some point you'll give up. Or B, you'll become proud and judgmental. You'll become proud and judgmental. But according to the Bible and according to what we see right here is the way in which you'll enter into the rich joy and the sweetness of being in Jesus, the way it happens, that you, you, you can say things with your theological statements like he's my savior, and, and you, you want to fix that gulf between your theology and your enthusiasm, which, which is so small, right? And you feel like, those statements are grand and cosmic, and yet my enthusiasm is minuscule. The way you fix that gulf, here's the way you fix that gulf. The confession of sin. That, that, that wide place between what you say about Jesus and how you feel about Jesus. The, the way that place gets smaller is the confession of sin. You know, Here's the application. Stop stealing yourselves. Stop, stop affirming yourselves. And this time I'm going to be more religious. This time I'm going to be more committed. That's not working. I've tried it for 34 years. It hadn't worked yet. It won't cover your sexual brokenness and it won't cover our shortcoming. Rather, the, the what to do for tonight, the application for the night, the path to rich spiritual experience and the confirmation and the richness of intimacy with God to joy the path there begins with weeping. It begins with confession. It begins with letting the Bible expose you. To stop justifying and to stop watering down Scripture. And then to see how Jesus responds to the sexually broken. And, and to the broken in other areas. This is what John says in his letter. If we say we have no sin, the truth isn't in us. You know the Bible says that? If you say you have no sin, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. What we think is, we think if we bring our uncleanness into this mess, that we're going to defile Christianity. Right? I'm so dirty, I don't belong. If I presume to be a leader in this group, I make this group dirty. I bring my junk in here and jack it up. You don't make Christianity dirty. Christianity makes you clean. Rather, Jesus makes you clean. This is how Jesus responds to the sexually broken, with mercy and with forgiveness. That's what made her fearless and full of love. All she did is she just stopped pretending and came to Jesus and sought forgiveness. What I hope... Uh, as the campus minister for you, I'll close right here. Um, what could make me quit this job and go do a startup, right? 
would be if our reputation on campus, and, and, and I, I pray regularly for all the ministries, if the Christian reputation on campus is this group of morally superior people. That the kind of people that gather around the gospel, what I, this is actually what I hope the reputation for RUF becomes socially among campus. I, I know not many people care about the reputation of RUF. and probably doesn't even have a reputation. But this is what, <laughs> uh, that means we register on somebody's radar somewhere. I don't think we have. But I hope this is a room full of messy people, and I hope people know that. That this is a place where people are no longer afraid of exposure because this is a place that where they got exposed, they found mercy and hope. And they no longer had to live fear and fear of exposure anymore because they knew I could present my whole self to Jesus, all of it, the things I never thought I could articulate or admit even to myself, and I found mercy. I hope our reputation is. This is a place where messy people find mercy. And messiness is messy. That's the frustrating thing about it, you know? Because that's going to make things complicated. As a pastor, you're like kind of, in my role, you're kind of torn, you're like... Oh, messy people are difficult, right? Which is terribly arrogant and proud because I'm a messy person who needs pastoring. But one of the most disconcerting things for a Christian minister would be having a group that runs smoothly. I hope we get messy. I hope things are difficult in us and in this room and within your friendships. And not because we're praying difficulty, playing, uh, hoping for difficulty for difficulty's sake, but because what that reveals is this is a safe place to be exposed because it's full of mercy and forgiveness. That's how Jesus comes to sexually broken people. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the way you've interacted with this woman and the fact that you've chosen to preserve this story and communicate it to us too tonight. And I pray we'd be moved by it and I pray that we would discover things about you that would soften our hearts and bring us joy. In your name we pray. Amen.